Hey everybody, welcome to Killer Serials. I'm Tony Jones. I'm Ryan Parker. And we are a couple of guys with PhDs in theology who talk about TV that we watch. And uh, we also have special guests on from time to time, which is what we're doing today. We have a really, really great conversation with Cutter Calloway, who's the author of a brand new book. Right, Ryan? Yeah, it's a book called Watching TV Religiously, Television and Theology and Dialogue. He co-authored that book with Dean Batali, who, among many shows, was a writer on That 70s Show. That was a very thoughtful guy about faith and pop culture and television. And you'll remember, if folks are listening to the podcast, we had Cutter on last week to talk about episodes 7 and 8 of Luke Cage. And our conversation, we thought we would just include some stuff about his book, but that conversation ran long, so we thought we would just give that over to a whole episode. And so... Uh, it'll it'll sound like we're kind of jumping into a conversation here because we are. And uh, Cutter is an associate professor of theology and culture at Fuller Seminary. Uh, for those of you who may not have listened to that last podcast by way of an introduction, and we really get into his book, what he and Dean are up to, what they hope people take away from that book, the nature of television, the processes by which we engage television, the whole thing. So take a listen and more importantly, get a copy of the book. Yes, here's our conversation with Cutter Calloway. Um, so again, Cutter's new book, co-written with Dean Batali, is watching TV religiously, television and theology and dialogue. Cutter, what is TV? <laughs> well, it's probably easier to say what is TV not. Um, <laughs> and 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 Dean and I went round and round on this. Um, and, and in fact, the way the book emerged was really over coffee multiple times um and we espouse all sorts of crazy theories and then realize we couldn't print most of that um and and part of the challenge right now i don't i mean i don't know uh if who all is aware of it but like the emmys for example um, dropped the uh, uh the academy of arts and sciences uh they dropped the arts and sciences from their their tagline and they almost dropped the television part um, you know, the Emmys are the, it's something like the tele, arts and sciences of television, however that is. Um, but they kept it because they said there's something, there's a kind of brand awareness that comes when we say television that we want to hold on to. Um, because some people would say nobody watches TV anymore, right? We don't, we don't even, I mean, we still have televisions, um, that we think of on like a, a box, this machine sitting on top of a, of a counter somewhere. Um, but but it does signal this really important shift, both in terms of how we watch it and what we watch it on, and then the amount of stuff that's coming out. So we talk about um, TV being a few different things. One, it being uh, a technology that, like all this technology that we're consuming, and in fact, in the Luke Cage narrative, mobile technology and who's a hero and who's not, and who's breaking the law and who's not, will come into play um, pretty significantly. Um, so you can't get around it being a technology. You can't get around it being a narrative art form that people are making sense of their life in and through. Um, we see this in, I think, Luke Cage a lot of obviously they're addressing contemporary issues of Black Lives Matter and uh, police brutality against people of color and, you know, all sorts of these, these issues that are helping people make sense of their life through a story. Um, but then it's also a commodity, and we shouldn't ever forget that we're all paying some giant corporation monthly dues for us to consume this stuff. 
Um, and there are gatekeepers for what kind of things we get to see and what kind of things we don't get to see. Um, and, and that isn't necessarily bad, but it complicates some of our viewing practices. And then finally, TV's a, a ritual. It's a portal to kind of a ritual life. Um, similar to what you're doing on the podcast, it's interesting, you're intentionally sort of delaying gratification <laughs> when you know you could just watch it all the way through. Um, yeah. and, and actually, the, the person who, who wrote Luke Cage said he thinks of it now in the Netflix world as um, like you used to do when an album dropped. And so Prince would, would, would write an album and you'd go and you'd just listen to it all day, just that album. And you'd yeah. basically binge it. And he's like, that's more what we're doing now with television than usual. However, there's a lot of other ways of doing it and, and, it, and it usually lends itself to, we want to engage the ritual of conversation. So we're going to delay, we're going to you know, spread it out over time so it can sort of marinate with us. Um, and, you're, and you're arguing in your book whether or not people binge it or delay it there's always a social element to it by virtue of social media. Yeah. Um, you know, and this, you, depending upon where it lands, so a Netflix show, it's all there all at once. Um, others that are still on, on the broadcast uh, sort of format um, that you, it's only coming out, but usually people are watching it delayed. Um, now it's even cropping up of, you know, live appointment viewing again <laughs> so that you, no spoilers can happen and you can be a part of that sort of um, augmented reality on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever, live tweeting about it. It's interesting to me that that appointment television viewing largely takes place on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um, on Sunday nights. Yeah. You know, we would, mm -hmm. we, I remember going, you know, you grow up and go to church twice a, a twice a day, a twice a day on Sundays. And I was always so frustrated because I would be at church when the Simpsons was on and I could never oh, yeah. watch the Simpsons as part of, for most of my teenage life. And now we, there, what church has a Sunday night service? Yeah. Everybody's watching Game of Thrones or yeah. uh, Walking Dead or Westworld. Yeah. I'll tell you what people seem to not be watching is the NFL. At yeah, least it's not. It's going down. At, right. And, and let me ask you this, Cutter. I got, we got three kids here in my house, 16, 15, and 12. They, they each have an iPhone and they each have a laptop. And they're, um, it is, I, I have to make an effort if I want to watch a show with one of them. Because like, for instance, my daughter, I said, um, oh, we should, uh, we should watch the new season of Orange is the New Black. And she said, dad, oh my gosh, I watched that the day it came out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've been up in a room on our computer or whatever this summer and watched, you know, the, like binge the entire season. <laughs> um, but I was able to get her to and and my younger son to watch uh stranger things with me yeah and say okay we're gonna watch like in the two weeks before school starts we're gonna watch one episode a night and we're gonna finish it the night before school and try to kind of ritualize mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. but then you know I, i've got another kid who watch has watched like every episode ever of seinfeld mm -hmm. which but i but i haven't watched any of them with him he watched them independently on his own device, and then we have since like talked about it or been been able to do that thing about like, oh my gosh, it's just like that one Seinfeld episode. So what's yeah. interesting to me is that these that how much even that has changed. Like I have very vivid memories of of viewing television shows with my family in yeah. a communal type of ritual. Growing up, we watched the Muppets. We watched Emergency 51, at one, you know, stuff like that. And then even when my children were younger, we did some of that. 
Um, we watch Modern Family together. Yeah. For stuff. But now they're teenagers. They got each, everybody in the family has two to three devices. We don't really watch TV together anymore. And I, and we surely don't sit down and like watch a football game live for three and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> Who has that kind of time? I, I watch mine. Uh, I bought NFL Game Pass, and it gives me the condensed version in 39 minutes uh, if I can wait an hour. So <laughs> it's uh, so it's what do you make of that change yeah. with kids moving to these devices? And, and how does that change that ritual aspect of, yeah. you know, the family uh, sitting? Th- th- just think of the opening credits of The Simpsons. Yeah, they all yeah. get on the couch. They all come from their various spots around town. They rush home for appointment viewing. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And then the the flickering boob tube turns on, and they all go dumb. Yeah, I mean, right? I, yeah, yeah. I, I I think about this in terms of like the theology first, um, and and how do we interact with the the medium. I'm a, my kids are all young. I got a one, a four and six year old. So it's, it's a thing, but it's, it's different still for them. Um, sort of in the pre teenage years. Um, but we're already thinking about it. Um, and, and I think it, it, as a parent anyway, it has more to do with sort of intentionality with how we ritualize life. Um, the, the fact that, I mean, I, I grew up and my parents and I, we would watch, I think it was the Cosby show was maybe Thursday nights. Um, and I remember that we would get together and, and that was something we did. Um, and boy, that memory's changed, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, it has. Um, and and, I mean, so it's, it's that, and then a different world and, you know, so, um, and it's an interesting transformation of the memory of that, um, in some ways, because, uh, on the one hand, um, I would say that was, you know, a great thing that our family was getting together and, you know, we were, we kind of had this ritual thing. Um, and that, you know, depending upon who you ask, uh, if, well, at least let's say five years ago, there was no question that, yeah, this was this great show that, um, sort of was a tipping point or turning point in American perceptions of race on representation on TV. You know, you got the all in the family, the Cosby show, um, maybe, uh, trying to think of a more modern, uh, not modern family, but, um, and, and, and that would be a good, the problem is we were, there's still a lot of people that question, whether that was a, you know, an actual representation of an actual black family. So was my ritual life with my family something that was good when it was such a limited uh, scope and a limited options that we had? Now things have changed and you have all the options in the world. You've got Orange is the New Black. You've got Luke Cage. You've got, you know, um, all sorts of, of shows that are potential um, uh, windows into to, to seeing the world in new ways and more robust ways and richer ways. Um, but the danger, there's just a flip danger. And that is you can become totally isolated um, and, and not ever interact with another human being at all. Um, I think actually, so, and to me, that just raises some questions about uh, basic ethics. Like what are the, what are our primary concerns? Um, I think a bigger concern for me is not just the are you watching it on your own device somewhere? But are you even letting, um, in a similar way to all we had was the Cosby show, are you letting Netflix determine what you watch? Um, and, and there's, you know, with, with big data in terms of how we're being analyzed every click and every episode we watch, um, my kid's profile and mine is mixed up on Netflix right now, and it does not know who I am. 
because um, I'm watching, you know, Luke Cage and Orange is the New Black my, and um, My Little Pony and My Little Pony. Yes, actually. And so, it, but I bet they, but I bet they have even ways of sorting that out. Oh I bet yeah, they know more about you and your viewing habits. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting, people even pick between services. So, yeah. you know, you'll think people aren't, I, I suppose there are people out there, <coughs> Ryan, cough, cough, who are like, they pay for Hulu, they pay for Amazon <laughs> Prime, they pay for Netflix, you know, and yeah. I you think there are other people that don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. HBO. And I think other people are like, they're going to decide. And, yeah. and you know how, you know how rarely people change their like, cell phone provider or they know yeah. how hard it is for people to cut the cord on cable and go with direct tv it seems like a really big leap i think it's that same thing people are going to lock into netflix or yeah. they're going to lock into hbo and then they're just going to pay that monthly fee on their yeah. credit card and those are the shows they're going to watch and yeah. they're going to yeah. get into their little silo like what, what do you talk about it around the water cooler at work well i can't really talk about westworld because i don't do hbo i'm a yeah. netflix person yeah and it's this, so this kind of niche marketing is, so going from broadcast to narrowcast has some advantages, but these are the, in my mind, the disadvantages. And clearly the, for me as a parent, I'm thinking, all right, I have, you know, sort of untold riches in human history where it's not just current programming. It's now we're amassing all of the TV programming in the history of television that's we can access, but through some sort of just basic laziness or whatever, thoughtlessness, um, if we let Netflix and big algorithms determine what we watch, it's going to be even more isolated and sort of siloed and echo chamber than ever before. So I think it's both a how do we encourage our kids, our families to to do things together, but then also how do we make sure that we're kind of, I don't I don't know how you diversify your profile or whatever language we want to use, but in a way that that refuses to just say you liked my little ponies you might like you know so in, inhabit some practices even in our our managing of our profiles i think is important as well cutter you talk about i don't want to give away too much about the book here cuz I, I got but I, so i got a couple of broad questions that i think hopefully serve as teasers when you you talk about and i i haven't finished the book but you talk about early in the book the ways in which not only are shows offering their own take on reality or their own realities, but that taken as a whole, all of those shows together on one individual network offer up a way of seeing the world. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if this is beyond kind of the scope of what you're doing or if, if this is something you're still thinking about. And it's a little bit, it touches on a little bit about what you've been talking about with Netflix determining what you watch. How do you see the realities that NBC offers different from what CBS offers, from what ABC, HBO, and yeah. Netflix offer? Are there marked? Are we living in multiple realities, and what do those look like? You know, um, I think it's a great question, and it's the right one. Um, I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could differentiate between the major broadcast networks, but if I was going to say, you know, like a NBC, ABC, CBS, lump all those sort of together. Then you think about um, sort of yeah. HBO, its thing um, that that is streaming now, but formerly cable, but now you can do its own app, but it still releases periodically, right? And Correct. then yeah. Netflix and the Netflix model is just it's all it's all here. It's it is really like we want you to binge watch. Um, I the 
the interesting thing to me of, of like these larger narratives, um, I think, and this is a bit off the cuff, is just thinking the broadcast networks seem to narrate globally in, in ways that are a little bit more intentional or integrated than, say, HBO or Netflix. And I think it's because of their economic models. Um, I still don't quite know how Netflix makes its money. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's, it, I, I get we all pay 10 bucks a month and, you know, however many tens or hundreds of millions of people there are. But it seems like with the quality going up and the cost of these shows going up, when it, there's no advertising involved, I'm still not entirely sure how they're going to sustain themselves over time. I've wondered the same thing. And I've been like waiting for Netflix to say that you're going to start to have a one minute ad halfway between. Yeah. Because even, even HBO, when you, when you stream a show on HBO go or HBO now, either one, you have a 60 to 120 second ad at the beginning. It's always for another HBO show. Sure. But you, you sit through an ad, even though you're paying for HBO to get that Roku app. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think as of right now, so if it starts shifting, I think you'll probably see the dynamic shift a bit. But for the, the broadcast, I mean, broadcast television in the U.S. is purely an economic engine. It, 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 I mean, I, I, want, I like it. I like to consume it, and I think there's some good in there. But, but sort of the brass tacks of it, to use an economic metaphor, um, is we're, it, it's that classic, like the stuff between the commercials is just there to get you to the next commercial. Like that's why it's being produced. Um, it's why there are cliffhangers and, and, uh, different breaks in, in various episodes and the rhythm of television and, and how we've been shaped as TV watchers. Um, we really anticipate that given the, the dynamics of an economic model based on broadcasting. I think if you look at those major networks, and then you could even boil it down more into like their news outlets, because um, I see the news ones being even more specific in how they narrate, because then you have this, uh, this world where supposedly they're doing journalism, but when journalism is on TV and it's a part of this broader network that has to actually generate income based upon target audiences, um, you can't help but start being ideologically driven in certain ways. Um, and if isn't it ironic, isn't it ironic that you're, you're talking about the ways in which it's ideologically driven on the news, but you take something like Fox, for example, and the shows that they air there, those narratives run counter to oh, their yeah. family values and, and, uh, family friendly ideology through their news. Absolutely. And that's why it's so, it's interesting to watch and compare, you know, like what's the parent company, you know, First off, we just all need to acknowledge that Rupert Murdoch owns the world. Um, and so everything we see, you know, he owns the, the biggest, uh, he prints more Bibles than any other person on the planet Earth. Um, he owns, he owns HarperCollins, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, um, I think he's recently their company they had to sort of divide up, but it's still, you know, him. Um, but, but when you start doing that, that's when you start asking interesting questions about, okay, so where is this, this piece landing and how is it? sort of subverting that larger narrative, or how is it maybe contributing to it, perpetuating it? Um, this gets to issues of, of, of racial representation, of, of any sort of media violence we see on TV, that sort of thing. Um, Dean and I, actually, it's a fun argument we have, argument slash just, I think, fundamental disagreement um, about, uh, there's a part in the book on The Daily Show. Um, and I, I actually compare The Daily Show and satire to Old Testament Hebrew uh, uh, prophecy in, in that it was fundamental, 
fundamentally a satire. It was this sort of scathing, humorous, uh, gesture type of a critique against yeah, these power good. structures. Yeah. Terry, um, Terry Linval. I don't know if you read Terry Linval's God mocks book, oh, but he uh, talks a little bit about that. You, you should check that out. That's, oh, that's, uh, that's spot on. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, and Dean and I don't see eye to eye on everything and that's what made the book better than it would have been <laughs> if it would have just been me. Um, and, but he thinks actually that it's the opposite. He thinks that what Stuart is doing is, um, just sort of, you know, uh, critiquing everybody except himself and doesn't acknowledge that he's guilty of the same thing as all these other people. And I said, but I do think there is a difference. And, and, you know, John Stewart would used to say the same thing about a show as others. There's a difference in John Stewart shaping reality according, cause he's very clear in what his, his view of the world is. And I, I think he makes it, it, you know, demonstrably clear that he has a point of view and he's making an argument. He's not giving you just the facts, right? Well, he, ar- he argued for a long time too, earlier in his career that he also had a greater sense of perspective. He realized we're a show that comes on after puppets making yes. prank calls. And that's the, know? that's the larger narrative thing that even that, that him having his own perspective or not, you know, however, if we want to charge him guilty or not, he's landing in comedy central. That's a to- that's just a totally different dynamic than if you're you know uh, whatever Fox and Friends or some show that is one purporting to do journalism and you're a part of a much larger uh, news channel that's also purporting you know their tagline it has a certain balanced perspective and then you're a part of even much larger sort of Fox 21st Century Fox so um, or, or look at or look at how Stephen Colbert when he leaves the framework of Chris, uh, of of Comedy Central. Yeah. And moves into the framework of CBS, where he's, in so many ways, comedically neutered. Yeah, it he, it's so. I, I just I watch him and I just cry inside yeah. at how much he's suffering in that new environment. Yeah, because I, you know, and this sort of gets. I think I go in this book into the book. Uh, I think I told Ryan, I'm like, you know, books are such that you write them and they don't actually come out for like fourteen to eighteen months. So then you're like, oh, it's out. What did I write? Um, <laughs> so I think it's I think it's in there. But um, essentially, this this question of of us, we we internalize some of these narratives, and then we turn around and demand them uh, of uh, our our production. So we are. I'm stealing a word here from a guy named Ryan Bolger, but uh, producers with an S, not producers, but but we're basically co-producing this stuff, um, and so we get a lot of the stuff that we expect and that's with Stephen Colbert because he's now speaking to an audience that demands a sort of vanilla, not too, uh, not too biting form of humor. That's really just, Oh, make, give me a couple of laughs before I go to bed. Um, and it's because he's trying to meet the demands, not just of the network, but of the audience that has created and supports that network. Um, which again gets back to the changing dynamics of these economic models. Once we're all streaming, and niche marketing, and we have our HBO sort of silo, what does that look like in the future? Well, interesting that tonight, um, we're, to, tonight we're, we're recording this on the night of the big 2016 presidential election, and Colbert is going on Showtime yeah. for a live show, which I'm guessing most people who watch it you know, aren't going to be watching it on Showtime, qua Showtime, but on yeah. some kind of streaming service yeah. because obviously CBS will be doing serious news. Well, it's, it's Amazon or Hulu now that you can buy a Showtime uh, oh, subscription. Yeah. So yeah. it's probably also some Could nice inter- integrated marketing there. 
You couldn't see it, but Tony put air quotes around serious news. Um, <laughs> Cutter, I think people start to get a sense of, of kind of the depth at which you're approaching television, which we often don't see in, in pop culture. What's a, what are you trying to do in this book? Like, what's your, what's your end game with the book? Well, that's a good question. Um, it assumes I have one. Um, <laughs> but but I, I know I would, other than to make millions of dollars. That's I mean, right. Oh, man. You know, a- academic no. You know, textbooks. You, articulate, you articulate very clearly in your introduction what you know your guys' hope is uh, yeah. for the reader. So I, I think uh, to yeah. kind of help people get a sense, what what is that for you? Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, I would like people one to to actually take television more seriously as this sort of world creating uh, artifact that it is that that it's not. It, it really is the way that we imagine the world. So Tony's example of, of talking to his son about Seinfeld. I mean, I can't, I, I can't say how many times uh, I talk to people with the language of Seinfeld um, or some other television show. So there's, there's just the like basic, um, here's how we uh, communicate with each other. But then there's the bigger, um, this, these narratives actually help us make sense of stuff. Um, one thing we haven't talked about on the when it comes to Luke Cage and sort of the rise of the superhero both in TV and film is that this is landing in like a post 9-11 world. Um, and I think there's something to be said for what people are, are sort of yearning for in their narratives um, in a context that's seemingly fraught with violence and fragmentation and polarization and whatnot. Um, and, and, and that we we we've the collapse of the sort of meta narrative has happened or this sort of distrust or suspicion, but there is an impulse towards a needing a meta narrator, right? That, that we actually kind of enjoy. Um, we appreciate, we expect these storytellers to tell something coherent. And this is why the, you know, the end of lost, for example, either you hated it or you loved it, depending upon how much you thought, um, uh, Abrams was screwing with us basically. Right. Um, and then in, in the book, I yeah. talk about how that show then became the actual resources for how people started talking about and understanding real world missing airlines, right? That that's part of, of what it is. So, um, I think part of it is to acknowledge TV is not simply, you know, the boob tube. Uh, it's, it's not, um, just crass, uh, commercialized, uh, lowbrow entertainment. It's in fact, world shaping. And because it is, we both need more tools, critical tools for understanding what it means, how it means, what it is, but then also some medium-specific theological tools for people of faith, for theologians, um, for anyone just considering the religious implications, uh, to be able to talk about that in some sort of constructive way instead of just critique and, and, and derision. Now that you bring that up, do Christians or people of faith have anything to contribute to the act of watching television and yeah. talking about television. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, one, you know, we kind of like I'd said before about internalizing certain demands. Um, we we aren't. I I my sort of uh, understanding or my theory of like communication. I'm I'm not one that that says media that we're all a bunch of passive idiots sitting in front of a screen that's just piping in you know, damaging ideologies or messages all the time, but that we're actively involved in the construction of this. And this is even more evident nowadays with 
social media with uh, television producers actually inviting audiences to contribute to how narratives are shaped. So on a really ground level, that's, that's a reality that we can contribute to the creation of these things as the audience. Um, but then also on, on a, another level of just sort of interpersonal or maybe within a family of saying, you know what, um, how we practice our TV watching, how we make the selections we make, um, how we talk about it, um, that's actually productive in its own right as well. Like we, criticism is often, you know, uh, berated as being, uh, you know, the people who can't create criticize, I guess. <laughs> um, but, but sort of learning sort of the healthy mode of interacting and coming to deeper interpretations of things and then posting them on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, that's actually an act of production um, that has value in its own right. So I think as people of faith in those spheres, um, we have a, a certainly a, a role to play. So you talked about, this will be our last question. You talked about finding, um, you know, interacting with shows, uh, being conscious about what we select to watch as families and individual consumers. You've thought a lot about TV as you've prepared this book. And you, you're, what I like about the book so far is that you're, you're not just looking at the last five to ten years. You're talking about the Dick Van Dyke show. You're talking about I Love Lucy and showing how these patterns continue to define what's produced, how it's produced, yeah. and, and how we consume it. So what are your, let's say, this is called killer cereals. What are your top <laughs> three killer cereals? Of all time? Sure. Oh, um, well, this... Uh, yeah, I'm not saying they're the best. They're, they're your favorite. Um, you know, this, this is going to be... Yeah, this will be my favorite. And, and one of the things we did in the book was, how do you even start talking about it? Because there's so much. Um, That's right. And we kind of, right. we filtered it out between like, the WGA had, the, they, they did like the top 100 best shows of all time. Then there's, um, then I, we went to IMDb TV and, and cross-referenced it with the 100 like highest viewer uh, rated. And then me and Dean kind of cobbled together our own uh, personal lists. Um, and so my list, I think sort of, Topping the charts um, has to be probably, well, some combination of Friends, um, Lost, and uh, True Detective, season one. Those would be my top, a, top three that come to mind. <laughs> that's a great mix. Yeah. Um, and, and all for different reasons, you know? I mean, like, my wife and I watched uh, Friends when we were dating and then got married and um you know yeah we did we did that too yeah, yeah so so like that sort of charted the the trajectory of our relationship really or, or, we, or mapped it well, lost did that for us as well we had been yeah. watching friends but when my we, my wife met and i we lived in different parts she was in england i was in the u.s and then when she moved back um and we really started like dating that was the fall that lost came out Huh, yeah, and it was like our our dating life synced up with the first episode of Lost. Yeah, and then the True Detective one is one of those moments. Both Dean, it it got its way in the book because both Dean and I had a similar kind of encounter with that show. Um, in that, you know, it's this just dark, nihilistic seeming show the whole way through, and even down to the like just the last minutes, you're. Uh, should I spoil this for people? I admit it's not a spoiler, but um, no, it's not. Come on, it's been um, a couple of years. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, it's it's old. Um, but you know, McConaughey's sitting there, um, and and they're looking at the sky, and and they're just like, well, what's the point, you know? And 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 he basically, it's something along the lines. I don't remember the the line exactly, but um, some people might look up and see it's all darkness with just 
you know, little scattered bits of light. And I think the light's winning. Yeah. And, and I was like, well, I mean, this is just a moment. I, I binge watched it. My wife, we didn't want to watch it. And that was good because she <laughs> doesn't do great with violence and kid stuff. I mean, just a brutal show. And that little tiny glimmer that, that he holds out at the end is like this profound. And not only does it say exactly where we're at culturally, um, and, and personally, but, but that you could offer a glimmer of hope in that way. I thought it was just, it was a sort of a God moment, if you will. Yeah, that's good stuff. Well, listen, Cutter, we want to thank you for coming on and talking to us about it. I mean, I think the book is, it's a, what I like about it is there's some depth to it. There's real depth to it, but it's also very accessible because we're talking about um, a, a rather universal art form that everybody's engaged in. And so you're not, you're not going so deep that people can't bring their own thoughts and experiences to the table and have that conversation. And it's really an invitation, right? It's an invitation for people of faith to be better, to be more thoughtful uh, consumers and producers. And so I'm excited to see where that goes for you and and the other conversations that it opens up. And hopefully we can have you back on another episode when we're tackling another show. Sure. Yeah. I'd love to. I uh, love chatting TV. It's, it's what I do. (laughs) <laughs> yeah Thanks, awesome. it's and congrats on the new book and uh best of luck thanks man i appreciate it right. thank thank you so much for having me on thanks thanks everybody for listening to this special edition of killer serials we'll